We're going to carry on with week 15 of our series, The Gospel is for Everyone. It's a study in the book of Romans. Today we're going to end our fourth sermon in the chapter, uh, chapter 8 of Romans. And we're going to take a little break from this series. But I just have to say, chapter 8 has been amazing. It's like the preacher's dream text, right? I don't have to be a very good preacher, and yet I can do some great preaching as long as I read what's in front of me. So I'm going to do that to start off. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. And we're in the last few verses of Romans. We will read Romans 8 verses 31 all the way through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for giving me the power to stay on my feet when I read such powerful words that cannot be explained by any sort of human mind coming up with these words. We thank you for your blessing on words like this, and we ask that you would add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done right here, right now in our midst. Overwhelm any other competing kingdom that would seek to distract us or to press us down. In Jesus' name, I bind any other distraction, fear, accusation that would prevent us from seeing the flow of your love and all its implications as you're making history through us now. Amen. If you're taking notes, I'm going to be preaching our text with the hope and the expectation that you walk out of here with a miraculously transformed and deeply profound confidence that the love of God is unconquerable, inseparable, and finally, uncontainable. Now, as a reminder, Paul has just finished up a breathtaking discourse that we covered last week about God's sovereign hand in redemption. God causes all things to work synergistically for the best of his chosen children. God foreknew, 
God predestined, God justified, God will glorify. God starts, God finishes. It turns out God has a lot on his plate, and he's okay with that. And as we get to verse 31, the turn in the question is, are we okay with that? It doesn't determine if God's going to keep being God. It determines how much peace we have in the process. Are we okay with that? For the first time in sentences of this discourse, verse 31 starts out with a change in sentence subject. No longer is it God who does these things. The the sentence subject is now us. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, God is God. So what use is our feedback on his job performance? Or or in this context of of our passage here, would we dare speak any contrary word about ourselves that doesn't correlate with what God speaks over us and with what his love is meant to perform in us? God is God. He's terrifyingly powerful. What shall we say? Now, Paul goes on to draw some hair-raising conclusions about what this means for our own security if we're children of God and what it means to press down the shameful lies of our enemy and a few other things that gives us this overwhelming solidarity to be dangerous in this world. Even better, though, these conclusions that he draws that I say are hair-raising they're, they're given in the form of 13 victorious, taunting questions. Questions that have inspired hundreds of victorious, powerful songs and anthems and will inspire thousands yet more. And it's almost like Paul is shouting down his opponents in the midst of this great battle that we're in, whether we know it or not. He's just shouting them down. I, I remember that. Kobe Bryant used to just do so much trash talk on the court as he was dismantling his his opponents. And it's like, that's what's happening here. It's Christian smack talk in the form of questions. Underlining first and foremost that God's love is unconquerable. Now, the first truth that Paul drives home here is given through a series of taunting questions, as I say, and The first of which is at the end of verse 31 here. What shall we say to these things? If our God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you don't enjoy me singing as as much, that's okay, because I enjoy it enough for the both of us, so it's fine. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love we can just sing whether we're in church or especially when we're, we're facing battles not in church from Monday through Saturday, we can shout down the attacks and accusations and lies of the enemy with rhythmic power or attempts at rhythmic power. We have this authority. If God is for us, who can be against us? So often we compare ourselves to others here on earth. They're stronger wiser, prettier, more wealthy. The list goes on. 
I'm just trying my best to relate here because pastors and leaders of church never fall into this comparison thing, of course, being a little facetious. Or we examine our own position on earth in light of our opposition, which is more specifically what this is talking about. We feel weak. We feel defeated by our sin patterns. And maybe these things are true in an isolated sense, but when we do this, we're leaving out some really uber-important details, namely God. I can only imagine if someone like General Patton, who had this this amazing uh, confidence as a general, I can imagine if if he would have gone before face-to-face with his Nazi opponent, General, let's say he forgot his gun back in his barracks, General Patton would not have said something like, oh, I forgot my gun. He would have been more of the disposition, I have the whole stinking third army at my back. Let's do this. I bring him up as an example because if this man could take right inventory about resources at his disposal, how much more should we be doing that as we face the battles that we face? If God is for us, who can be against us? And why do we so routinely forget about what's behind us and in us and the person that works through us when we face battles at work or at home? God is with us. Martin Luther wrote this hymn, Mighty Fortress, and it kind of emits this sort of sobered swagger. He says about our enemy, the devil, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Devils tremble at the name of Jesus. This same Jesus stands with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It makes me think about Elisha on the mountain with his servant And the whole Aramean army was arrayed against them. And it was one of those moments that most men would become very nervous. But God showed Elisha a a picture into the spirit realm. And he saw an angel army at his back. And he looks at his servant. This is uh, 2 Kings 6. He said, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I can only imagine his, his servant looking at him and being like, dude, you have a accounting issue again here. His servant wasn't convinced, and so Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. That's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you, that the Lord Jesus Christ would open our eyes that we may see, and not see less of the context of the battle, not see less of the very real circumstances that make up the, the details of what we battle, 
but that we would see more of what God's doing in the midst of it all. We need eyes to see. And so we can walk away with an evidence-based, spirit-filled confidence. And the taunting continues in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? Now, when we hear the word all things, we're supposed to think of three or four verses before, verse 28. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So all the hard things that we might suffer might threaten to undo us, as Martin Luther said, but they won't conquer us. God uses them to better us. If he can do it, here's the... Here's the line of reasoning. If, if God can, can use the hardest things for our victory, why wouldn't he use the lesser things for our victory? If Kobe Bryant, back to Kobe for a second, if he was coming against me in a one-on-one battle, he's, he's not going to get super nervous about it. Because I, this might surprise you, but Kobe has gone up against fiercer competition than my left-handed hook shot. I'm just guessing. He wouldn't be super nervous. And that's the line of reasoning. Considering what Jesus suffered in real history and how he really triumphed, will not the Father grant us greater victory in this battle? And considering how Jesus, remember how he fed 5,000, which was really about 20,000 people with what amounts to an H-E-B meal simple, one. If he fed all those people with that one meal how will he not also graciously feed us, provide us with provision in this current financial roadblock that we're in? If the suffering Savior also is the one who, before whom demons tremble and conquerors are disarmed, if the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is also the lion of Judah, how will he not also graciously give us our own cross to bear? and yet our own empty tomb in right measure. And here's the key. Because of this confidence, we can be sobered as we look at our opposition. We can suffer well. We can triumph well. And we can not allow the devil to have any accusational space in our minds. God's love is unconquerable. Don't allow any suggestion otherwise. Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, praying for us. The love of God, when placed irreversibly on his chosen children, is unconquerable. Non-condemnable. It's even unchargeable because it says here, God is the one who justifies. If the Father already brought the worst charge against Jesus, who didn't deserve any charge, and yet he chose willingly to take that charge upon himself in our place to cancel the debt of those of us who deserve it, then why would God go and then charge us? He can't. 
He won't. And that's why if any enemy or spirit suggests otherwise, we need to silence it in Jesus' name. Jesus said, it is finished. And now he's alive. He's interceding for us. No, verse 37 says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now I have to admit, as I've read this verse over the years, I've, for like two decades, read into this verse some things that are not there until Pastor Morgan recently from Mosaic Church helped me see this verse better. I used to think it says, oh, we're more than conquerors. So that means like we're like conquerors, but like better conquerors. It's not saying that. It's saying that we're categorically other than conquerors. The Greek word conqueror is the word nikau. It comes from the Greek pantheon of gods, the, the conquering god Nike, which is where that sorry company of shoes in Oregon gets their name, Nike. Paul is saying, no, we don't conquer externally, but internally. The weapons of our warfare are not against flesh, but they're spiritual weaponry. They're internal. They're under armor. See what I did? Okay, anyway. I'm not an under armor guy, too. Neither shoe fits me well. I'm a New Balance guy. But anyway, back to this. He's saying, he's saying we're not conquerors at all. He's saying we're not kneecap. In fact, right here, Paul actually makes up a new Greek word. He says we are hyper nikau. Hyper meaning other or greater than. We are more than conquerors. In Israelite history, there were all sorts of conquerors that they had context for. There was Persia, Assyrians, Greece, and then here we have Rome. And even Jesus' very followers, after seeing this otherworldly grace upon him to do things the opposite of how all the other conquerors did things, and to gain power by giving it away, even after seeing his power, and after the resurrection, when Jesus allowed the conquerors to kill him, but then he was like, boom, just kidding. I'm going to rise again from the dead and ascend to heaven. Even in this moment, they said, okay, are we going to conquer now and like unseat Rome now? They didn't get it. Paul's saying, no, we're greater than that. We're other. We don't conquer the conquerors. We disarm sinful conquest with the love and peace of the risen Christ. And today, any nation that boasts, any prime minister or president or ruler that bullies, any army that marches, any corporation or special interest or lobbying cause that would threaten with human power, will be disarmed. The question is, right now, have you been disarmed of fear or worry or doubt or anything else that would not separate you from the love of God, but maybe delay the power of what the love of God alone is intended to do in your life? God's love is unconquerable, And God's love is inseparable. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So if you could do nothing to qualify yourself for the love of God, 
you cannot do anything to disqualify yourself from the love of God. Anything that lacks the power to attach, to place God's love upon his child, also necessarily lacks the power to detach or separate that love from his child. So the taunting questions persist. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, he quotes Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's quite a gloomy list there. But I just love how God's word explicitly spells out the worst of what our fears might conjure up in order to just lay it bare. You know, we we might say like, what if these bad things happen? Am I going to be okay? And Paul's saying here, look, these bad things happen and you're going to be okay. You are okay. You will forever be okay. They happen to Jesus. They happen to me. But before any of these suffering things happen to you, and millions of years after the suffering stops, the love of God happens to me. The love of God can't can't stop happening to me, won't stop happening to me. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He sounds rather convinced. When it says here, I am sure, it's best translated as it is in other versions, I am persuaded. So the question for you today to examine your own heart. Church is, again, a place where God can give us help to judge ourselves, right? Judging others is way too much weight for me, but I can judge me, Lord, help. Question is, Are you persuaded? God's love is unconquerable. God's love is inseparable. And finally, God's love is uncontainable. This overwhelming love isn't just meant to fill you with confidence, but even better than that, it's meant to spill out of you. Can't be contained. I want to take you back to to Romans 1 and give you a little context, remind you about why the whole letter of Romans was written in the first place. Paul had spent decades preaching and spreading the love of God all over the known world at the time. And he had heard that this church in Rome had had started to form because of the faith, and he hadn't visited them yet. And so he was writing them a letter to gain more of their fellowship in the truth of the gospel and thus their partnership in the mission of the gospel. He wanted to expand the borders of the faith from where it started, which was Africa and the Middle East, all the way to the barbarian white people in Spain and in Europe, where it went next. That's why he wrote the the book of Romans. The love of God is and has always been uncontainable. There is no such thing as a person who can fully receive the love of God and then keep it to him or herself. The gospel is personal, but it's not private. It's either spread publicly 
or it's squandered. So in Romans 1, after Paul lays out his intention to gain the partnership of the mission of the gospel to Spain, he says this in verses 14 through 16. He says, I am, I'm going to do the KJV, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. I'm debtor, or under obligation, but debtor, to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This word debtor is really important. I want to illustrate this as it relates to the uncontainable love of God and the whole point of Romans. Last Sunday, one of the members in our church woke up before the service and heard the Holy Spirit say, take some money out of the bank and I'll show you what to do. So this person obeyed and got to church and heard that the imperative was to give me the money to anonymously give it to another member of our church that was in need. Now let's stop there for a second. I just need to make sure you're tracking with me. If this person would have said, here's some money, I want you to pay me back, that would make me his or her Debtor. It's good. Now, he, this person didn't say that. He told me to give it to this other person, but I was just making sure you're tracking with me here. I didn't see this other person after service. In fact, it wasn't until Tuesday at lunch that I could see this other person who was to be the beneficiary of this gift. So track with me. For about 48 hours from church to Tuesday at lunch, I was this person's what? Debtor. That's right. If I give you $10 and I say, you need to pay me back, and you say, yeah, okay, you're my debtor. If I give you $10 and I say, you need to give this $10 to her, you are her debtor, right? You tracking with me? If Jesus dies on the cross to pay for your sin, he rises again from the dead to bring you new life. He comes and breathes new life into you and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, be indwelled with my love. But then he says, Go therefore to every nation and make disciples. Then you are debtors to every nation, to all people. Does the love of God do enough to give me power to obey? Yes. Have you received the unconquerable, inseparable love of God? Have you truly loved him back and been called according to his purpose? If so, it's a love that cannot be contained. It must be spilled out. It's uncontainable. You are indebted to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your boss, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, to Texas State University or Louisiana State University or Sudan or Bangladesh. Jesus said, 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the house. Over the last 11 years, time and time again, God has specifically and prophetically affirmed for me about the kind of unique church that we're leading. And yet, time and time again, I've allowed myself to compare falsely and get insecure about who we are and uh, allow comparisons and false views of church success to invade me way too much. And frankly, I'm, I'm really glad that four or five years ago, God called us to change our name from Christ Community Church to The Springs. Not that there's anything wrong with the, the former name that we had, but it's just not quite us. You know, the thing about a spring is when the, the water wells up so much in a well that it comes out, it's then a spring. It's no longer a well. The springs is who we are. And besides, I had wrongly burdened myself too much with trying to meet the expectations of what is uh, expected of a community church what that means in our culture. But we're not just a community church, and we're not just any sort of typical church. And hear me, if you're living and breathing right now, God doesn't want you to just be a typical American. He's called you for more than that. He doesn't want you to just balance you into his life, and as if he's going to give you a high five for that. God doesn't want to be a balance in my life. He wants to be God because he's God. And I know that most of us are accustomed in in the United States to kind of just like allowing busyness to dictate what we do. But God would be so gracious as to make us feel uncomfortable about that arrangement. In our church, for instance, we we want a a safe place for kids to grow. That can be understood and expected in a community church. But we want to be a people who make devils feel unsafe in our city, that we overcome evil with good, even as the power of God is helping us to not be overcome evil with evil. And we want to see the gates of hell trampled down in our city and in the nations through us, because we are the springs. We're a people that are called to be members of his family, and that spring forth with his power. We can't contain it. A few things about our church. We We're called to reach the next generation. So if you're a community member in this church that's been called by God to be a part of this church, you have an inheritance in campus ministry in helping to reach Texas State or the high school campuses or the next generation. We're called as well to train up young leaders. Last week, I was standing right here at the end of our service, and I saw as the prayer team came up that the prayer team and the worship team, it looked almost like a youth group. And I smiled and thanked God for this gift. Years ago, I would have almost felt like the need to apologize to somebody about that. As if it's my job to create an environment where an older person is seeing everything that they're familiar with. No, we don't need to see what we're familiar with. We want to see what God's promised. And besides, any older person like me who wants to see the power of God 
through the ancient truths of the gospel come alive. I can come up for prayer and see what God would do through a young leader like this. We're called up to raise the next generation, and we're called to send some of them out from here. And this has meant that over the years, we've had to sometimes simultaneously in the same season rejoice over numerical growth and numerical shrinking as we're sending some of these people out. Thank God. Yeah, that's, now I wish I would applaud that more readily in the past, but it turns out God didn't always wait on my good attitude to do what he's going to do anyway. My attitude determines how much joy I have in the adventure that he's called us to. I'm going to say something really objective, and I need you to track with me. Either the gospel is for everyone, and I share it with everyone, or it's not. Now, when I say I share it with everyone, I mean that anyone that God tells me to share it with is is not off limits. So I don't just go shout down every person I see in the streets, but there is not a single person that I am not a debtor to. If the Holy Spirit says, pray for them. Either the gospel is for everyone and I share it with everyone or not. Now, here's where all of us are in this arrangement. We can agree with the first part and sometimes our our lives disagree with the second part and that's where we need God to help us. But sadly, I've seen people believe the first part of this sentence that the gospel is for everyone, that the gospel is not just one of the good things that's there for some people, but it is the good news for all people, that there's no other way and no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than Jesus Christ. He pays for everyone's sin. He's the only one who can do so because he's the only spotless lamb. And he came to bring us new life. Either we believe that, or we don't. Now, I've seen people believe that part, but then the next part, like, okay, therefore, I share it with everyone. We're, we're falling short. We're allowing business in our life to dictate our schedules and, our, and what, our words and things instead. And so I've seen people that, in moments like communion, come to see the Holy Spirit say, you believe this is for everyone, but you're not sharing it with anyone. And I've seen people respond by repenting of the second part of that and not the first. Like, okay, I believe it's for everyone. I'm not sharing it with anyone. So we come to growth groups, and we pray for needs, and we pray for names of people who are not yet coming to growth groups, right? And we invite those people into relationship by taking them to coffee, inviting them to church, right? I've seen people repent of the second part of that, of not sharing it. But I've also seen people sometimes slowly start to turn back on or repent of the first part of it. Because if I'm uncomfortable and that means that I could need God to change me and use me out there, well, maybe if I just subtly back off of maybe, maybe the gospel is not for everyone. Maybe Jesus is like for me and he's just a really, he's a really great God, but not the God. And so I've seen people subtly start to back off of that first part. God forbid. God forbid. We cannot damn up his love. His love is uncontainable. Let us grow in his love and discipline. If as we prepare for confession and communion, 
if you feel a little uncomfortable personally, it's not because of what I'm saying. It might be because of what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. And maybe it's the grace of God. Maybe it's sanctified discomfort. He's moving you. And maybe this is a unique moment of power to overtake you today that the peace of God could disarm any false comforts in your life and any conquering voices that would seek to distract you. I am persuaded that the comfort you'll get from him through an honest exchange at the table in faith is better than any lesser comfort through not seeing that happen. Would you stand to your feet with me?